everyone, this is Philip, and I want to apologize for two things. First, my audio twerked out uh, sometime in the middle of the conversation, and it was due to some weirdness in my internet connection. Secondly, we ran a little bit long, but that's because our conversation with Paul was so fantastic. We hope you enjoy. Today is June 7th, 2020. Welcome to the Generic Board Game Podcast, all the board gaming content you could possibly want at a fraction of the price. I'm your American host, Philip Millman. And I'm your European host, Victor Gannon, or Vic from NaveCon. Uh, had to be Gannon because it would have been embarrassing for the kids to have that in school role. We have something special for this evening. Tell the nice people about it, Philip. Uh, I'm, I am super excited. And for people that know me and have seen me post on various social media, there is one person that I hold out as the preeminent board game rulebook editor. And as someone who's read rulebooks and has, I wouldn't say I'm a connoisseur of rulebooks, but I have certainly seen some really horribles. Bring out your dead, I'm looking at you. And I've seen some very good ones. And the good ones almost exclusively come from our host, Paul Grogan, someone that I've met at cons and uh, someone who... I look up to for all things editing. So, and he's also a generally nice guy too. And he likes cats. So I, I, you know, there's just so many things. And now the one drawback with Paul is he hasn't had a chance to take a picture with my trophy, but maybe one day. So with that, Paul, say hello. Hi, Philip. Hi, Vic. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, we are, it, it's really, it's, it's really our pleasure. So I guess the first question um, is how did you get into board games? Yeah, I mean, it all started, so going back to when I was a kid, I was always interested in fantasy, sci-fi, you know, I was reading Lord of the Rings when I was 10, saw Star Wars at the cinema when it came out, you know, all of that sort of thing. Um, and then I was in a bookshop uh, in my town where I lived in England, uh, mm -hmm. and there was this book called The Warlock of Firetop Mountain. And I'm like, oh, yes, this is a fantasy, oh, it's fantasy, right. A ch what? A choose your own advert? Ooh. <laughs> so if you if you want to know how I got into gaming, right, that is probably the start because from there went on to another uh, another sort of uh, it was actually a stationer's uh, in Thornton Cleveley's where where I was where where I lived when I was a kid, and the stationer's the guy who run the stationer's played D and D and helped run the local D and D club, so he stocked role playing stuff and everything else. So it kind of led to that. Then it led to a role playing club that I went to when I was like, you know, 14, 15, this kind of thing. Um, so I primarily from a role-playing background, going back to the back, back to the 80s and the 90s. Um, and then through that, I played various board games. There was one guy who joined our role-playing club, and he was the guy that brought Civilization and a quiet. Oh, nice. He was a board gamer. We weren't. We were role-playing game people. But every so often, we'd go around to his house and we'd play, you know, acquire Axes and Allies and, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. then i got seriously into magic the gathering in the mid 90s and that, oh. that kind of took over everything i mean i used to dabble with war games role-playing games the odd board game now and again but primarily role-playing games then magic the gathering came along and i just got completely obsessed and addicted with that it took over my all of my other hobbies and yeah it basically took over my life for a few years and then i got so fed up with it I had to basically quit. I went cold turkey. And the local Magic the Gathering club that I was attending at the time, so this is 90, 98, I think. This mm -hmm. is now, I'm now living in um, uh, just north of London. Well, I say just north of London. It's like 25 miles north of London. Um, that sounds like commuting distance to me. It was, but I didn't work in London. So, oh, okay. Um, but it, it's in that, it was in the southeast of England. And mm -hmm. thankfully, the local club that I went to was 75% people playing Magic the Gathering. And then in the corner was a group of people playing board games. So I nice. had the ability. I went, well, I'm fed up with Magic. Oh, let, let's go and join them and see what they're doing. And they were playing um, a supper, Primordial Soup, Formula D, uh, occasionally Catan, um, various other ones. But that was the introduction to me for modern board games. Getting out of Magic, going cold turkey on that in 98, 99, switching over to 
you know, the modern board gaming hobby, which I dabbled with a little bit. You know, I'd played mm-hmm. Catan in like 95, 96, but, uh, and there we go. So it's been 21 years now, and now modern board gaming, specifically Euro gaming, that is now my complete obsession and hobby. And I, I haven't done role-playing games now for oh, 10, 12 years. I still, I still dabble with card games, and I haven't done any war gaming for, yeah, a long time. So, yeah, that's... That's a very sort of snapshot history of, of, of how it, <laughs> how I got to where I am. Paul, funny enough, Vic here, the, um, I had a similar story. I, I got into magic and it became a total obsession for maybe mm-hmm. three years. Um, and I was buying a house, my first house. And to afford the deposit, I sold my, um, I sold my deck already. Right. And uh Every now and again, I look and I see the cards I had for sale and they've kind of gone up in price because yeah. I would have had the Power 9 yeah. at the time. So I look at the Lotus and I'm like, oh God, I sold that for 150 quid and it's yeah. now worth 20 grand. And I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, should have held out. For me. I, yeah. um, I only started with just at the end of Revised. I think going okay. into Ice Age is when, I, is when I got into it. Wow. Well, so I'm just kind of curious because I'm a, I'm an old role play gamer too. What what uh, systems did you play? So primarily D and D, which which version? Well, I started with first. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, okay. So I've still got in the attic. I've still got loads of my first edition uh, books. I mean, I started with. I think the club that I went to was playing AD and D, but when we got okay. into it before we found the club at this stationery shop. Um, it was basic D&D. So it was the red box, basic D&D. That's how sure. we started. Uh, and then expert. And then we joined the the club that was playing AD&D. So then we transitioned to AD&D. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I played a lot of AD&D, first edition, second edition, three, 3.5. I, I gave up role-playing just a year or two, I think, before fourth edition came out. And sure. haven't gone back to it since. And it, 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 you know, D&D is like the Magic the Gathering. There are better card games around than Magic. But yes. then you go to a local club and everybody's playing magic. So it was like, oh. Sure. So we dabbled with other role-playing systems, but D&D was always the popular one, and that was always the one that that everybody was playing. And because I liked fantasy anyway, um, I, I kind of stuck with that. Now, if, if, we, if we're starting talking about regrets, because, you know, it's a Sunday night and I've had half a glass of wine, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, when I leave this world... I am going to look back on my role-playing life of the 25 years that I played role-playing game with a lot of regret. And I I already have that regret because now I'm looking back and I'm going, oh my God, there are so many amazing systems out there. And I just didn't. I just didn't really try them. So Shadowrun, Cyberpunk, Call of Cthulhu with a decent GM, you know, and things like that. I'm now looking at those systems and going, why didn't, why didn't I allow myself the opportunity to do it? And part of that was my reluctance because of the fear of getting in something new that I didn't understand, you know, uh, and part of it was just didn't have the ability to do it because everybody else was was just playing D&D. But yeah, there are so many systems out there now that I just think, you know, why did I stick with D&D? <laughs> so yeah. I, 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 I... I think that's a, a, a podcast for another day because yes. uh, there's because I'm actually now getting back into role playing games and I'm playing a lot of these different systems. But anyway, Vic, you had some questions. The uh, yeah, no, it's 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 funny because like I think most gamers and I, let's just talk generally will dabble in a little bit of everything. They might do you know a little bit of war game, a little bit of RPG, and maybe they favor it more. But what I've found, maybe you guys have found it as well, is that board games tend to be self-contained yes uh you don't need to buy now i know i spent a fortune in magic it's okay i you know <laughs> people knew it at the time and it was an obsession and you needed to get the next pack and so on and if you played warhammer you were buying new models if you mm-hmm. were buying x y and z you were buying add-ons whereas you pull out a board game it's in a box yeah. it's there maybe you buy an expansion if it's good or maybe you put it back in the shelf if it's not and you sell it I have a question for you, Paul, and this is something we asked a lot of our guests. What currently are your top three favorite board games? Well, I've said many times on lots of interviews and stuff that I have approximately 50 top 10 games. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Ouch. Now, what it's that okay. means is that I have games which I enjoy so much that I think that's a top 10 game for me. And I've got about 50 of them, maybe even 60 now. So for me to identify my top three has been really tricky. But I've always said, well, for the last five or six years, Mage Knight is my number one game. I love everything about Mage Knight. And it's one of those games that, you know, I, I went for about three years not playing it. And then November last year, played it. Well, taught three new, taught three new people how to play, which for me is as, as good as playing. And then I actually did a solo playthrough a couple of weeks on my channel. And it brought it all back to me, just how good this game is. And what's really, really nice about Mage Knight is I'm a member of the Mage Knight Facebook group. And there mm -hmm. are people on there all the time, new people discovering the game. And they are they're discovering it now and they're playing it and they're going, this game's fantastic. And there's people on there who've been playing it for years and years and years and they're posting pictures of their plays. It is still as good now as it, as it was then. It hasn't dated um, and it is still very, very popular. So um, yeah, Mage, Mage Knight would be my, my number one. Um, from the same designer... And this is mm -hmm. no bias whatsoever, even because... Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't see bias in this at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, until I tell you my number two. Um, yeah. Because Vladja Shavatel has mm -hmm. become a friend over the years uh, and through the ages is definitely... Oh, 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 yes. You, you just made Vic very happy. You yeah. just made Vic ah. really, really happy. That's, that's my evening is done. Yeah. It's, a, it's a masterpiece. It's an absolute masterpiece. And I've been playing through the ages... For 14 years now. You know, I've been playing it since the first mm. edition came out. Um, yeah. And it is just amazing. I am constantly in at least one game of it at the moment on the iPad. We're yes. running a tournament at the moment using new, CG's new tournament system. I've just been playing it, you know, so long. And it is so, so good. It is an absolute masterpiece of a game. So Through the Ages is is up there as well. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And and in fact, if I don't play it very much, but if you want to play for money or a, side, side, <laughs> a small side wager, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. Yeah, don't yeah, don't trust Vic. He also plays a lot of diplomacy, just FYI. Right, okay. Um, <laughs> as for my third game, I'm really not sure about, to be honest. Um, I was going to put Gloomhaven in there, but... Because Gloomhaven is one of those games that we've been playing since it came out, okay? And we're mm -hmm. still playing now, and we're still enjoying it now. But the Gloomhaven experience for us has become... It's the same group of people. It, we mm -hmm. meet up, somebody cooks dinner, although not at the moment, um, and it became <laughs> a social event, and we'd meet up, and we'd play through the campaign, and we'd play through the scenario and the character development. Going back to the whole role-playing game thing, Gloomhaven is not a role-playing game. The people who say Gloomhaven is a role-playing game are wrong. I'm going to go on record and say that because a role-playing game is so much more than just moving pieces around on a board. Mm -hmm. um, but it's fantasy. You've got your character development. You've got your leveling up. You've got your getting experience points. You've got ticking boxes on a sheet to improve your character. It gives you a certain bit of what you get out of a role-playing game, which is the character progression. It doesn't obviously give you the character interactions and the you know the the acting part of a role-playing game the actual you know playing a role um but yeah it, it, it's just fantastic so the gloomhaven experience for us is fantastic and i really do enjoy the gloomhaven game but if we're going to treat it if you know if we're going to say to me is it in, is it in my top three games of all time i'm not sure but if it isn't i'm going to struggle to pick a third one because there's so many great euro games i mean if we look at last year i couldn't decide between crystal palace maracaibo cooper island i think it was those three yeah, yeah. and yeah. i i could not decide between those three which one of those three was my favorite one so yeah, it, it, it's tricky. I'm going to have to bottle out of the third one, but I've given you two of them. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And Clay will be very happy that you mentioned his three games. Um, oh, yes, yes, yeah, they are. I, 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 in fact, I've said this, I think, in, in my review. Um, and in December of this year, I will be doing my top games of 2019 because I always right. do my, my top five games list a year after everybody else. And it's basically going to be this video is not sponsored by Capstone Games, even though you think. <laughs>
No, Clay's had a, an amazing year at picking games. With, I mean, I, I, I like Clay. Me and Clay get on. We've become friends. And um, I, I, I talk to him about the games that he's choosing. We have the same taste in games. So, it, it, you know, it's obvious that he's going to be wanting to publish games that he thinks are, you know, good quality games. But boy, has he managed to get some good ones. And, you know, let's yeah. not forget Pipeline and Watergate. What an astounding year Capstone had. Yeah, and I was actually happy to be part of the Watergate. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Except for the two grammatical errors that missed proof. Oh. Pretty, I'm pretty happy with what I wrote. Yeah. I mean, so can, I, can I ask you a question? Is Did you have, um, you know, an, an interest in the Watergate thing, or did you have to do lots of research to write that stuff in the back of the rule book? The answer is yes to both questions. Okay, right. So, so uh, I was... Uh, I was eight when Watergate hit. Right. Uh, and so and I remember sitting with my grandfather watching um, the Watergate Senate hearings. Right. And so it was fascinating. And then, you know, and I've taken it through history and so forth. But when I was asked to, when I was asked to write this, the synopsis of it um, by Mateus, I said, okay, but it's going to take me, I, I, I want to re-research re it to make sure I didn't forget anything. And so while I have an interest in it, and I think it, and it was very timely as it turned out uh, in American politics, mm -hmm. I found it fascinating. And I found it fascinating, sort of the cascading uh, events, as well as a lot of the mistakes that were made both by the FBI, as well as the Nixon administration. Yeah. So... Uh, as, as well as as, as uh, the Washington Post reporters. I mean, they, they too made mistakes and they missed things. Uh, it was a very chaotic time. But yeah, I, I had to re-research re it because I wanted to make sure that what I wrote was clear, concise, and correct. Yeah. And for me to write something, and, and I'm not as good of a wordsmith as you are, Paul, but I'm not bad relative to other people that I've seen right. Well, I mean, it, it, it was really good that the decision was made to put all of that stuff in the rule book because I know some people will think, oh, this isn't the rules of the game. What's the point of this being in here? But I read it and I was like, it helped the immersion of it and it helped me get more of an appreciation for, as you say, this wasn't as simple and as clear cut as you think. And he almost got away with it. And you think, how? How did he almost get away with it? And it was just, even though there was so much stuff piling up, he still almost got away with it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, it was a, it was a, it was a tough call, and there were again, uh, there were a lot of mistakes made by the FBI, and, and certainly, please read my summary, guys. Uh, if you have Watergate, I, I spent a lot of time and effort on it, <laughs> but I'm also of the belief if I'm going to write something concisely, I have to know all the detail, yeah, because that way, uh, to quote, you know, uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name, uh, Mark Twain. I would have written a longer if I had more if I had more time I would have written a shorter letter. So, right. so let, let's a little bit of a background. Many people know you from gaming rules, yeah. um, and you've been doing that professionally for a few years now. But what's your background prior to that? What what did you do beforehand? And you know that sort of gave you the skill set to go forward into what you're doing now. Um, so I I come from an IT background. So okay. when when I was mm -hmm, uh, yeah, so this was eighty nine. I got a job working in a computer center in Fleetwood, emptying paper off very, very large printers. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, was an, it was an ICL mainframe thing. And yeah, that was, you know, it was loading real tapes onto a thing. It was like, you know, it was in the computer department. And then I ended up moving from there and getting into networking and did something else. So I've, I've 25 years in the IT industry. At the okay. end of my career, um, I was actually the... IT manager of the support team for the University of Exeter. So oh. I had a team of um, 15 people and at the university, and you know, when, when your computer's not working or something's wrong or you need a new computer, you call the help desk and if the help desk can't fix it, it goes to second line support. And mm -hmm. I ran the team that was effectively second and third line support um, for the computers. So in, in the latter days of my career, I did the thing that I spent 20 years saying that I would never do which was be a manager. I was always mm -hmm. the fix-it person. I want to go out. I want to do the technical stuff. I'm not bothered about managing and everything else. And then uh, about, about yeah, the latter 10 years of my career, I ended up becoming a manager and then staying as a manager moving through. And the last few years, my technical skills went to almost zero. 
Um, mm -hmm. It was all management of the people, management of the team, management of the daily workload, dealing with the emergencies that were constantly coming in, allocating resources. Sounds like a game. Um, and a, <laughs> a lot of project management as well, because we did a lot of projects in addition to just the support work. So it was, it was having to balance all of that. Um, and yeah, I, I think I was quite a good manager. I, I think, I mean, I'm sure everybody says that, but what I did is I, I learned from other people's mistakes. And I had lots and lots of bad managers, as I'm sure we all have over, over our professional careers. And every single mistake that any manager of mine made, and I'm not talking like, you know, technical mistakes, I'm talking bad management mistakes, flagged in my head. So I went, right. Right, I'm never going to do that. And I'm never going to do that. And I'm never going to do that. Um, and, and I just tried to be, you know, a good manager by, by not doing what a lot of the bad managers <laughs> did in the past. But yeah, that, that was, uh, that was my, that was my career. Um, and that officially ended, I think it was January, 2015 is when it uh -huh. officially finished. Hmm. But it was over quite a few months before that. There's, there's, a, there's a story. There's a story which for two years I wasn't allowed to say because um, I signed a document. Um, I am now allowed to say it, but I, I don't really think I want to. It's just one of those situations. Yeah, you don't have to say anything you don't want to. <laughs> but... I, I think you're pretty safe saying anything on this podcast. It's um, you know you could shout it out in the desert, and, and uh, you know it's as likely to be heard. And it's funny because I, I have a theory anyway, and Philip probably disagrees, but it's that a lot of IT, uh, we're coming across a lot of people we interview have an IT background. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, tell me, just swapping around a little bit, why did you jump from, I, I work in IT myself, The uh, but no one's ever really accused me of being a manager. The, <laughs> when, um, you took a, a career, which is a very brave thing to do, to go from something you've done for a long time and then start into something else. Yeah. Um, why did you start it? And what was the biggest challenges you had in getting it off the ground? Because I assume it wasn't something that was kind of running or full-time or whatever, that's something you could slip into easily. So it, you had to make a, a leap of faith. Yeah, I mean... There was a few things. There was a few factors that, that combined together to it. For a start, I've, I've always enjoyed teaching people how to play games. And I, I've been the one throughout my entire life. It's always been, let's go around to Paul's house. He's got a game. Paul will teach it to us and we'll play a game. And that's been like yeah. 35 years of that. Um, and not a week goes by where I am not teaching somebody how to play a game, usually multiple times per week, every week for my entire life. That's, that's just how it's always been. And I, and I love doing it. You know, people sit there sometimes when I say, oh, it's all right, you play, I'll teach you. And they go, no, 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 because then you're not playing. And I'm like, no, trust me, uh, you know, this is fine. And I actually enjoy it so much that, you know, I feel like I've played a game. Um, so yeah, I've always enjoyed teaching people how to play games. And I thought that... Um, it would be useful because a lot of people are visual learners. I thought it would be useful to create uh, tutorial videos on how to play games. Wow. Now, I had absolutely zero background in using, I, I could just about take a photo mm -hmm. and that's it. I have no knowledge of recordings, video, lighting, audio, zero, absolutely none whatsoever. Digital effects, digital animations, zero, absolutely no background in that whatsoever. Never done any of that at all. But I thought, I'm going to start making videos on how to play games. Um, and I, I still had the full-time job at the time. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I wanted to do this. And then somebody said to me, as I described to them what I was planning to do, and they went, have you, have you seen a, a YouTube channel called Watch It Played? And I was like, no, no, no. Let, let, let's just have a look. And I went, oh, yeah, that's pretty much exactly what I wanted to do. So to all the people listening to this podcast who think Paul Grogan's just a ripoff of Rodney and he copied him, well, technically I did, but <laughs> honestly, I, 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 you know, I, I, I did come up with the idea myself. It's just, and the thing is, if you remember back, if you've seen some of my very, very early videos from, you know, sure. well, between four and six years ago, it was digital animations. Everything you saw was all digital animations. And those videos took me like 60, 70, 80 hours to create for like a 10-minute wow. video. 
And the reason why they were digital animations is a couple of reasons. First of all, um, I actually tried doing a video with real components mm -hmm. and it was awful because again, lighting, I hadn't lined the cards up properly. I didn't have a proper surface to put them on. So I ended up putting them on the table. Uh, you know, I didn't even have a proper cloth mat or anything like that. And it just looked so amateurish. And I thought, I don't want this to look amateurish. I want this to look slick and professional. And I thought, I'm going to have to do digital animations. And I spent three months of my life learning just the basics of After Effects. Wow. wow. And I never forget, it was Christmas Day. And I managed to get a cow animated coming on the screen from the left, doing a little dance and moving off to the right. And I sent it to Vlaja. And it was Christmas Day because it was in the morning. Both of our respective families were fast asleep. I noticed he was online on Skype. I was there beavering away working on learning how to do animations on Christmas Day morning because that's what you do. And I was so excited about it, I sent it to him. And he was like, oh, cool, you know, whatever's next. And he was like, I look back at that day and I think all I did was animate something, you know, you can do that with PowerPoint. Yep. <laughs> yeah. so it's the fact that I'd done it in After Effects and yeah, I, I sent, and that, that was the start because the first video I actually did was for Tash Kalar, which is, which is one of Vlaja's games. And it, yeah, was, it's a big it, game. it was all, it was all digital animations and, and, and everything else. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was how it all started. Well, that's, that's amazing. I mean, considering how far Vic and I have come just on audio, mm -hmm. uh, if you take a look at our first couple of them, they're rough. Uh, and we don't, it, it takes time. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, and with your passion for the gaming, I think that, that shines through. It also shows that you don't have to be Rodney Smith. You can be Paul Grogan yeah. and produce a good product, and it doesn't have to be the same. And, and, and one of the things I actually like about the board gaming industry is, you know, Rodney Smith is such a nice guy. I met him a few years ago. You know, he, he gives tips just, well, you know, hey, I want to try to do this. He goes, yeah, you should try take a look at some of these things. He's, he's very good about that. And um, no, it's one of the things I like about it is the, the enthusiasm and how people uh, actually do want to help each other. Um, so I, I guess the, the next question, because we, we talked about, you know, how, sort of the challenges getting this off the ground and how sort of, you know, you've been just sort of uh, developing this. How is Patreon working out for you? Because that's one thing I've, I've wondered, um, you know, there's plenty of content providers that, that rely on Patreon. Um, you're one. Uh, and I do now the full disclosure, I do support Paul on Patreon. Um, and this was not, uh, this interview was not a requirement or <laughs> one of the perks of Patreon. Uh, he did it just because, uh, but I do support Paul. I do support, uh, another person that we interviewed here, uh, Jesse of Quackalope. Uh, I have supported other, uh, content providers. Uh, how is that working for you? So the Patreon thing is a, I say a relatively new thing, but it's been a couple of years now. Um, cause when I started it, it was purely, uh, commissioned work that I was doing. So it was all, uh, you know, paid tutorial videos or rule book editing or, or everything else. And I think I did a couple of extra bits on the side, but any extra bit that I did, I think I did the podcast back then. Now I've not done the podcast for well over two years now, um, but I think I was doing the podcast on the side. And the problem is, you know, as you'll know, when you get started, I was spending like a day and a half to edit a 20 minute podcast because I was editing out all of the erms, I was adjusting volume levels, I was, you know, and I learned so much in the years that I did the podcast that I got that process streamlined down. And I realized that you don't have to be absolutely perfect, but I, 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 was, I was trying to, I was spending way too much time on it. So I wanted to start doing more stuff that wasn't paid for. I wanted to start doing things, I'm doing, I'm doing the quotes in the air here for fun. So reviews, playthroughs yeah. and things like that, just me talking on camera because spending 60, 70 hours creating one video is like, oh, and people always said it was the lack of content that was holding my channel back from growing. That's what lots of people said. They said, Paul, you need to be putting out regular content, not just a video every two months. And the rule book work, of course, a lot of people don't, don't actually see that. So... I thought, well, hang on a minute. If I'm going to start producing all of this extra content, which is not likely to be paid for, I'm going to have to take a, a cut on the, on the salary. And I wasn't in a financial position to be able to do that. So by launching the Patreon, I thought, right, 
I'm going to keep the commissioned work. I'm going to try and cut down on it, but I'll keep the commissioned work as it is. And the Patreon is to fund all of the other stuff. And, I, and I'm, I'm very clear about this, is that, um, you know, the, the, the rules videos that I create and the rule books that I create, they are commissioned by the publishers. I kind of don't want people to support me on Patreon because of that, because I've already been paid to do it. Now, a lot of people do support me on Patreon because they see my tutorial videos and they want to support me. But I try to I try to say that the, the Patreon funding supports and pays for all of the other stuff that I do. Now, when it started, the Patreon was, you know, fairly small. It's grown a lot over the couple of years. And as it's grown, what it has given me the ability to do is take on less paid work and actually create more Patreon-related content. And if I'm honest with you, I'm now at a position, certainly over the last three months, maybe even four months, with all of the extra content that I'm doing that's funded by Patreon, if the Patreon, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying to all the listeners, go and support me on Patreon now, but let's say overnight my Patreon support doubled or tripled, I could theoretically give up the commissioned work and just spend all of my time creating Patreon-related content. In other words, mm. a little bit like some of the other content creators, so the ones who don't, um, don't do any commissioned work, who are purely funded through Patreon, they are producing content for the fans of their channel, the people who are paying them the money to do it. And that would be great. Now, the reality is I actually like doing the commissioned work, not for the money side of things, but I like creating the official how to play videos for certain games. So I'm, I'm not going to give it up, but I, you know, the, sometimes the late night live streams where I say, I'll tell you what, the film's finished. It, it, it's 10 o'clock. Hmm. I'm not tired yet. I don't want to go to bed. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll do a live stream of me playing, you know, through the ages or twilight struggle or something like that. And a dozen people pop in the chat. And most of the people that pop in the chat at that time of night are Patreon supporters because I have a Slack channel. I'll post about it there and some people will say, oh yeah, I'll tell you what, I, I wasn't doing anything. I'll, I'll pop on and watch Paul play Twilight Struggle and I'll I'll send him abuse in the chat telling him he's picking up. <laughs> and the other night, I did one with almost no planned warning whatsoever and it was like 11 o'clock at night and I started playing another game and about half a dozen people popped in the chat. And suddenly, the patron... To say that it's changed my life sounds like uh, it's a bit dramatic, but it has. The community that has now built up on the Slack channel has been, and it's difficult to put it into words, but it has helped me in more ways than I can actually express. The fact that there is this private discussion group of patron supporters and they wouldn't be patron supporters if they didn't like the content that I make. So it's a nice, safe area where I can go and I can chat to people. And I'm very active on there. I'm on there all the time. We're chatting about the weather. We're talking about games that we're doing. And what's really nice, certainly in the last two or three months, is that community that's on the Slack channel is now driving itself. So I popped on there today, and there are people on there on the online gaming channel arranging games that they have. And they've been doing this now for two months since lockdown. Mm -hmm. my patron supporters all around the world are using the slack channel to discuss oh what game should we play next anybody fancy a game of territory work on on board game arena yeah i'm free in 15 minutes so Brilliant. i'm downstairs doing some work or tidying the garage or something like that and suddenly i've got this community of supporters that are actually you know playing games with each other and i'm not involved in that at all you know the i've just put the infrastructure there i've helped promote this nice sort of friendly area and suddenly people are now seeing each other. And what's really nice is when you go to a UK convention and I organize a little Patreon supporters meetup one night and the people who've been talking to each other on the Slack channel for like six months or so get to meet each other in real life and have a beer and have a chat. And it's just really nice. So yeah, I, 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 I couldn't do without it now. And not just from a, a financial point of view, from a, what it is giving me as a, as a person. That's absolutely wonderful, and, and and you know I can see that the uh, and it's great that you are actually you know it is supporting you to a certain extent. The whole idea of editing rule books would drive me up the walls and back again. I'm just kind of curious. You do it kind of partially for a living. 
what is the most annoying thing about editing a rule book apart from getting it published and there's one little error in it so the the, the most well I, t- I tell you what it it's quite stressful. It's quite stressful. <laughs> I can hear it in your voice. Yeah, yeah. It, it isn't. You know, people say, "Oh, it must be. It must be great." You know, you're, you're you're working in your in your dream job. It's your hobby. You must love it. Thinking that I'm sat there editing rule books with a big, big smile on my face. Um, no, actually, the editing the editing of rule books isn't. Uh, it, it's one of the least enjoyable parts of my job. If it was to you know line up all of the content that I create and all of the work that I do. Editing the rule books is fairly low on the list because it's just, it is very, very hard work and it is, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to keep everybody on the same page, pun not intended, um, <laughs> because of the way that different people and different publishers are working. And because I'm working on multiple projects all of the time and I'm having to work and liaise very closely with uh, you know the designers of the game, the publishers of the game, the graphic designer, and things like that. It's if, if the process goes okay, and I'm very, very much process driven. If the process goes okay, we're all fine. Mm-hmm. If I'm in the middle of editing a rule book, and the designer starts going into the same document and actually adding text in there without flagging it or Ooh. changing the color or anything like that, yeah, and then. Two weeks later, I'm reading through the same document and I read a bit and I'm like, well, that, that, they, those are not words I would use. And there's a mm. spelling mistake. And I'm like, and he said, oh yeah, we changed the rules. And I'm like, okay, well, that, that's fine. But just to let you know, this 24 page document you've now, which I finished with, and every comment I had has been added as a comment, you've now gone in and changed some bits. You're the designer. That, that, that's fine. You're entitled to do that. However, I don't know what you've changed. So therefore, I'm literally going to have to read through the whole thing from start to finish because I don't know what you've changed. Now, my process now is once the designer stroke publisher has handed over the Google Doc to me, it's mine. And I say, this is now my document. I do not want you or anybody else outside of my team making any direct changes. If you read through it and you go, oh, wait a minute, I've missed the rule, you add it as a comment. But nobody else other than me and my team should be making any direct changes to this document because then I'm in, I'm in full control of it. So people might call me a control freak. Yes, I am a bit. But I am because my responsibility is to make sure that rulebook is good. And if I have other people going in there and fiddling with it, then, uh, yeah, yeah I, can't, I can't guarantee the quality. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, if, if we go back a couple of questions... Mm-hmm. I think there was something you mentioned in a question about three questions ago that I didn't fully answer. And I think you said something about skills for my IT career yes, helping yeah. what I do now. Yeah. And it's for me, this is this is process management. Mm-hmm. Oh, because okay. I was I was qualified in like uh, ISO 9000 standards and ITIL standards, and I was very much process driven. Um and I think that's got to have come from part of me as a person. I am logical. I need processes. Everything needs to go down a strict path for things to work properly um, and having the professional qualifications that, that back that up. But I carry that over to my rulebook editing process. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes as a surprise to a lot of publishers because a lot of publishers are just like, you know, they're gamers and they think, I've got a game. I want to make a game. Off we go. And suddenly I come along with a 21 point process that we're going to follow this and we're going to do this. And they read it and they're like, what the heck's this? Um, but this process is all there as, as, as safety measures. And it's this process has been, I didn't come up with this process on day one. This process is there now because of all of the things that I have learned over the years that I've been doing it of all of the things that could go wrong, like that bit that I've just mentioned with the designer, you know, changing the rules as he went on. That's now in my process that once the Google Doc has handed over to me, no more changes should be made by anybody outside of the gaming rules team. So, you know, very, very process driven. And it's that that I think is the primary reason why the rule books that I've worked on are generally considered to be good is because of the process that's been followed. It's not because I've got like, I mean, if I'm honest here, I don't have any qualifications in professional editing or proofreading. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for me, 
to call myself a professional editor. I am because I get paid for it. <laughs> but I know people who are professionally qualified proofreaders and editors with proper letters after the name and all of this lot. I got none of that. Absolutely none of that. And to be honest, they are better editors than me. If, I, if you give me a bit of text and ask me to edit it, and, and then we give the same bit of text to them, what comes back from them will be much better, well, better than what I give you. Mm-hmm. But editing a rule book is not just about, here's a bit of text, please rewrite it. It's about structure. It's about organization of information. It's about, you know, where the information appears in the rule book and everything like that. It's a lot more than just the words. Just, it's interesting, actually, because I work in software development right. and the thoughts of a customer um, actually modifying the code, if you will, gives me <laughs> shivers, you know. I just changed this bit. doesn't seem to work anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and actually, that's one of the things that when we talked to Raymond Chandler III, yeah. uh, the developer, the publisher of uh, City of the Big Shoulders, which is a game I truly enjoy, and I was one of the patrons that voted for you to play it and test it. Uh, I still enjoy it. And, um, but one of the things, you know, that he kind of intimated was that when he developed the rule book and when he was writing it, he was writing it from a perspective and a bias that he didn't realize he had. And so, uh, you know, what we, we actually talked about it on the, on the podcast and, you know, he was like, yeah, I, I, this was a good lesson for me and I'm going to learn from it. And, uh, you know, I, I really thought that interaction was uh, something that we should see more of in uh, not only in the board gaming world, but the world generally. But I, I do think, you know, and I hadn't thought about it a little bit until you just brought it, but I, th- I think that's a really good point. Writing a rule book for a game requires, you know, data structures. It requires proce- it process flows, right? Yeah. Uh, games have different stages, even the opaque games like a, a PAX Premier or uh, you know, a Western legend, which have, you know, sort of different things to it, still require that process to be thought through and, and you know, making sure that you get all of it. Yeah. So uh, I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's a really good point. And um, I've le- I just learned something, so I'm happy. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I did, I did listen to that, that podcast and Raymond was, um, obviously, he was, he was very nice with what he said about, about me, as were you. But the way that he dealt with that situation it's a shame that not everybody does that because I, when when I'm critical of a rule book, and I I will be openly critical of a rule book, which some people have have said I shouldn't be because I work in the industry and it's not fair. But I, I'm still a person. I still have my own thoughts. I'm not doing it because I'm evil. I'm not doing it because I like being angry. I'm doing it because I want things to improve. Sure. And I and I I was very very nervous about that review. And and, mm-hmm. and then when I did that review and I put that review up, yeah, very, very nervous about it. And and the the reaction that I got from a lot of people was interesting. So it's the only review of mine which has ever been posted to Reddit. Really? Because okay? on Reddit, I, I don't have much success on Reddit. People on Reddit are... Reddit is, and this is a whole other topic, but Reddit is great for the big names because they don't need to be on there. They're not active on there. They can disengage from it completely. Yet all of their stuff is constantly shared. Whereas the small players, none of their stuff gets shared. None of their stuff gets talked about. So, but my my review of City of the Big Shoulders was posted to Reddit by somebody else saying, this is how you do a critical review. And I had Uh dozens and dozens and dozens of messages saying, Thank you very much, Paul. For, you, were, you were absolutely fair. You were very, very thorough. And nobody could watch that video and say, you're talking rubbish. Because I literally highlighted, I said, look, there's a rule here. It's on this page. And then four pages later, there's another rule, which is the opposite of the rule there. You know, and, I, and I literally pointed this out in the video. Nobody could have a leg to stand on to say, nah, Paul's talking rubbish. Whereas if I'd been vague and just said, the rule book's not very good, that's... You know, I, I had to show it. So most people did that. However, I did get a few messages from people saying, Paul's talking rubbish. The rule book is absolutely fine. There's no problems with it at all. It is a perfect rule book. And I'm like, well, now I, I've already come across these people before. 
And there are certain other publishers and there are certain other designers that for years have done bad rule books. And I'm not going to name them, but we all know them. And their fans will say... I'll name one, okay. Portal Games. <laughs> and, the, and their fans will say, I don't know what people are talking about. Your rule books are absolutely fine. And it's like, um, no, they're not, right? They're, they're really, really not. But if you were a fan of a game... And I spoke to some people and they said... Yeah. I mean, I spoke to some friends of mine and they said, Paul, you're sitting at the Big Shoulders review of the rule book. I think it was a little bit harsh because I read that rule book and I was able to play the game from the rule book. And I said, ah, were you? And they went, yeah. I said, did you watch any videos beforehand? Oh, yeah. Right. And then I spoke to somebody else who also said the rule book was fine. And I said, uh, had you played the game before reading the rule book? They said, oh, yeah, I was taught how to play the game at Origins the year before or whatever. And I'm like, right, there you go. So it's, it's one of those things that if you already know how to play a game and then you read the rule book, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you'll think, yeah, the rule book's fine. But you need to come out the rule book. And this is going back to what Raymond said. His opinion of the rule book was based on a bias, you know, he, yeah. because he, I think everybody who'd read that rule book to help him check that the rule book was okay was a fan of the game or a friend or something like that. And it hadn't had a fresh pair of eyes on it and that's that's what it needed yeah and i think also just given the proclivities for, towards 18xx games which mm -hmm. i am a fan of and, mm -hmm. i mean i don't play it as much as i'd like because i don't have the time but if you're if you're kind of into the 18xx it makes a lot more yes. sense yeah and, and that and and look and that's fine but you're trying to market this to a broader audience and so yeah. i think and, and, and look, Raymond agreed with it, and I'm glad you guys are working together. And I look forward to throwing more money at City of the Big Shoulders for the upgrade pack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen version two of the rulebook. Um, we, we have fixed the, the actual issues, the contradictions and the things that are in the wrong place and the things that were missing, because there were some rules that were missing. They've been fixed. They've been added. That's that. It hasn't had the big structural re restructure that I would personally have done myself. I, I, you know, that was something where I made suggestions to Raymond and he thought about that, but he stuck with the, the general original story. He moved a couple of pages around, but if I was given full editorial control of it, I would have, I would have done a fairly, I would have done a fairly, uh, a bigger restructure than, than, than what's there. But, you know, I, I think the version two rule book is definitely going to be better than, than version one. Fantastic. Okay. So, uh, right now, I guess, you know, uh, things are changing in the world. Uh, people are, um, focusing on a broader set of issues than just what's the latest yeah. board game that's coming out. So right now, um, what are the best and worst things in the board gaming industry? And I know, I know for you, the worst thing in the board gaming industry is you have yet to have a chance to take a picture with my trophy. <laughs> yes. uh, but, you know, outside of that, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I had a Photoshop with the queen, so that was nice. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but for, from your perspective, what are the best and the worst things in the board gaming industry? I mean, if we're talking right now with, with, with the go what's going on in the world at the moment, I, I didn't think we were going to have anything more important to happen to us this year or even this decade than coronavirus. However, what's going on in the world right now, I, I, I don't know. It, 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 it's scary times. Um, so the board game industry right now, well, yeah, I mean, as I say, if, if, let's, let's talk about the impact of coronavirus first. It's interesting to see what is actually happening because as time went on and more and more conventions got cancelled and origins got cancelled okay right origins has gone but but gen con will be all right and essen will be fine yeah we'll, we'll be all right okay so essen's now cancelled okay well surely gen con's got to be cancelled as well and then a couple of weeks later oh yeah gen con's cancelled as well now i'm not a publisher i don't you know i go to these conventions and i work for publishers demoing games but I'm not a publisher who goes to these conventions who needs to sell games. And if we look at Czech Games Edition as a company, right, mm -hmm. who are, was my first client, without them, I would not be where I am now because they helped me get started. Um, they do not need to go to Gen Con, Essen, or anything else and sell any games, and they are, they are okay. 
as a company, they are okay. They can just carry on producing their games, sell them out to retail, and they'll be fine. However, when CGE started, so 2007, Galaxy Trucker, League of Six, um, because Through the Ages in 2006 was actually a slightly different company, technicality, but yeah. And for the first few years of CGE's life as a company, they relied, like many small publishers, they rely on their sales at the conventions where they can sell them at the, you know, the full RRP in order to keep the company going. And I know a few small publishers in the UK that are actually going to get really hurt by the loss of UKGE this year because they are not able to go. Yeah, they've got to pay for a booth and they've got to pay for a hotel. But the money they're going to make on selling X hundred copies of their games there is going to keep their company afloat for a year. And they don't have that. Um, and no. conventions are a great place for selling games because people are walking around. People walk around, they see your game, they look at it, and they'll play it and they might buy it. Selling a game online, you can't get that kind of media mm -hmm. attention. So I think it's affecting different publishers in different ways. And I and I I, I just hope that we don't lose some of the smaller publishers in this. Um, mm -hmm. But what's been really interesting is with, with everything that's going on in the world and the fact that a lot of people are going to are, are in a financially worse position than they were before with coronavirus, either, you know, temporary layoffs or, or whatever, I thought Kickstarter was going to slow down. It hasn't slowed down at all. At all. You know, <laughs> we just had Frosthaven, the biggest board game Kickstarter of all time, and all of the other Kickstarters that are being launched. It's like it's not affected everything. I mean, I... I knew a lot of these Kickstarters were going to happen this year because I, I, I work with the clients and I'm working with them behind the scenes, either doing videos for them or rule books or whatever. So I know that these Kickstarters were planned. And I was like, are you, do you, are you really want to carry on with this right now? And then they launch them and they're really successful. And I'm like, oh, okay. So it, it's kind of, in some ways, it hasn't really affected the Kickstarter part of the industry, which I, which I thought it would have done. What's your impression on the on the coronavirus impact? So, from my perspective, uh, and now this is something we've talked about, um, and I, I have a my background is in economics. Um, I, I it, it's kind of a tale of two cities, um, at least in the United States, and I and I and I do not know uh, the composition of labor. Uh, that's been affected by this in the UK or anywhere else in the world. So I, I'm really focused only on the United States. Uh, the people who've lost a lot of their jobs were the people who would not normally be uh, doing Kickstarters because they don't have as much discretionary income. Okay. So it's the lower 40% uh, got hit the hardest on the socioeconomic scale. So if, if you take a look at the uh, labor statistics, one of the really odd things, and this, this kind of tells you what's going on, um, if you take a look at the uh, May uh, unemployment numbers that came out of the United States, not the June ones, uh, you would see that you know our unemployment rate went up to 14.7% uh, on the unemployment rate, but the uh, average hourly wage went up. Right. Okay? And the only, the only way that happens is if the lower 40%, which are the service industries, uh, workers who tend to be paid less. Okay retail, so forth, they lost their job. So, and, and let's face it, board gaming is a discretionary income business. So for those people who have the discretionary income, they were less likely to lose their job. Right. And so that's why you see that disconnect, or at least that's my opinion. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I'll ask a more upbeat question. And it's 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 funny. My my theory is a lot simpler that people who buy board games can remote work in a lot of cases. <laughs> <laughs> and those who can remote work can afford to buy board games. Um also all the petrol and diesel they saved, um, they can yep. buy more, they can kickstart it. Is this your dream job, Paul? Because you've swapped from IT, which a lot of people will groan when I say is the most wonderful job in the world. Oh. Um, yeah, and uh <laughs> You've gone to gaming for a living, really, and, and yeah, yeah, what yeah. you do. Um, is this your dream job? So, I mean, I, I thought about this earlier on today. 
because you sent me these questions in advance, so I had time to prepare. And I, and I thought, Shh, I, yeah. sorry. It's our secret. It's like Blade <laughs> Runner. Yes, these questions <laughs> are written down for me in answer you, to your question. <laughs> Don't you shoot could, me. You could edit that bit out. Um, yeah. <laughs> we won't. <laughs> I thought I, I talked about this with Vicky earlier on. In some respects, it is. Now, the, the reason is I create instructional videos on teaching people how to play games, okay? I write rule books, which is teaching people how to play games. And the other big part of my job that I really, really enjoy is I go to these big conventions and I work for companies and I do demos of games where I sit there at a table and I teach people how to play games. And I don't play in the games as well. I am there just to teach the games. Almost every aspect of my job is teaching people how to play games. Mm -hmm. When I was growing up, my, my actual career plan when I was growing up, I did, I was, I was very good at the sciences. So I got, um, I got like a grade A at physics, A level. Um, and then I went to university to do astrophysics. And the plan was, once I'd done the astrophysics degree, I would then do a PGCE in teacher training and I would become a physics teacher. Wow. That was my plan. I, I, I always wanted to become a teacher. Now, life got turned upside down in 1989 and I dropped out of university and ended up getting a, uh, you know, a temporary job working in a computer center, emptying paper off printers. We all know how that ended. Um, 25 years later, I'm still in IT and I never went back to university. But that was always my plan. My plan was that I wanted to be a teacher because I, all, I, I love teaching people how to play games. Okay, so the other part of the job that I like is board gaming is my hobby. It's my passion. I am absolutely passionate about board gaming. So, and, and you know, certain people who I look up to as designers, Vlade Shavatel, Vital Lacerda, and, and there's so many of them. And these people are now clients of mine and I've become friends with them. I, I have arguments with Vital Lacerda at two o'clock in the morning about our rules on on Mars when we're developing the game, right? Now that's not a pleasant. I don't like having arguments. <laughs> I don't like having arguments with people who are friends and I don't like having arguments at two o'clock in the morning. But the point is that I did some game development for On Mars. On Mars is a fantastic game. Mm -hmm. I agree. And it's out there now and people are playing it and people are enjoying it. And I'm going to have to say, part of the reason that they're enjoying the game is all of those months and months and months of work that Vittel put in, of which I was a very small part of. But that argument at two o'clock in the morning where he was like, nope, nope, Paul, you're wrong. And I said, look, all I'm telling you is that we've played this game three times now and every single person I've played with found this rule confusing. It's too confusing. And he was like, no, it's absolutely needed because if we don't do that, we don't do Right, okay, well, that's your decision. You're the designer, fine. Next morning, nine o'clock the next morning, message from Vittel, Paul, I thought about what you said and you're right and we're going to change it. He just needed time, right? And that rule got changed. And I, I could go into details about what that rule was, but the, but the point is, I know now people are now playing that game and that rule is in the game because of that discussion that I had with him. And I'm not claiming credit for the design of the game at all. I'm just saying I'm a very, very small part of that process, but it's, it kind of makes me quite happy when I can see people playing a game and they go, oh, this, this bit's good, this bit works really well. And I'm like, mm, I did that. <laughs> so th there's good parts about the job. Um, you know, the, there's bad parts about the job as, as there is with everything. You know, when, when you take on a rule book editing job that you think is going to be a few hours work and then it turns into a 35 hour job, mm -hmm. when you haven't accounted for that, which I could have said, sorry, I don't have time to fit this in. What I do is I end up working 12 hour days for four days straight and then, you know, stressing myself out and losing out on personal time. But that's, that's, that's down to my work-life balance, really. Um, my dream job, if you ask me what my dream job is, I actually came up with my dream job about 20 years ago. I would be paid by all of the governments of the world to travel around the world, find problems and tell somebody that needs fixing and they go and fix it. <laughs> right? Because I, I, I'm just, a, I'm, I want to fix problems. Every, everywhere I see something wrong, right, I want to fix it. So, you know, the double yellow lines have been painted along the road, but then they didn't get painted far enough or whatever. I can say, oi, you, somebody needs to do that. Oh, yes, Paul, we'll, we'll come along and we'll, we'll do that. I just, I, everywhere that I see a problem, I want to be able to fix it or at least have the power to enact other people to be able to, to fix it. 
And as I was talking about this earlier on, I was like, I've kind of got that now. Now, not, not in terms of traveling the world and fixing double yellow lines, but thankfully the reputation that I have now with regards to editing rule books has reached a point that a number of clients who I work with, and I kind of don't know how I feel about this, but they've said it to me, is they'll say, Paul, what, what, what's your opinion on this? Or do you think this should be here and what, what should be where? And I'll give my opinion on it. And they go, oh, okay, well, you know, you know your stuff. You're the expert in, this is your area of expertise and you're known as, you know, so we're, we're going to go with your suggestion. And I was like, ooh, I do have the power to fix things. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I've kind of, in, in that respect, and, and it's, not, it's not the fact that I, you know, I want people to respect me or anything like that. It's just the fact that, yeah, I, th I think I just like fixing problems. Um, it, it's why I liked working on the Robinson Crusoe, the new rulebook, rather than writing a rulebook from scratch. Writing a rulebook from scratch is really hard because you might miss something, you might get it wrong. Mm -hmm. When I'm given a first edition rulebook, which is notoriously terrible, and I get told, Paul, fix it, I'm like, right, off we go, crack me knuckles, my job is to fix this and how, and you know, I, I can fix something easier than I can writing it from scratch and slight exclusive information. I have shared this with this with my patron supporters, but I haven't shared it with anybody else yet. And it isn't, it isn't hundred percent sure yet. Okay. But I've been having emails this weekend with monolith because oh. they want me to redo the Batman rule book. Uh, uh, having seen that rule book, that would be uh, awesome. Yeah. And I tell you why the reason be, the, one of the reasons why I want to do that job is, is not for the money and not because of the, you know, the attention I might get for doing it, because I might, I might not. It's the fact that everybody I've spoken to about the Batman rulebook, which I've not read, but everybody I've spoken to said the rulebook's awful. It's the rulebook's it's, awful. It's okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really bad. It is, I, but I will say it is not the worst rulebook I have ever read. No, okay. Um, but it's... It's bad. Yeah, and 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 I get the job of fixing it, which is just great because then I'll fix it. And I've I've already been back to them and I've said to them, if I'm going to agree to this, you need to give me full editorial control. If I want to completely and utterly throw the rulebook out the window and rewrite it word for word from scratch with a completely new structure, I want the ability to do that. And they said, yes, you can do that. That's, and I'm like, that's awesome. well, in in that case, you know, why why wouldn't I do that? So. Um, yeah, as I say, not not signed on the dotted line yet, but uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of looking forward to that as a as a challenge, uh, and I, and I do like a good challenge. <laughs> that that's that's awesome, and uh, you know I was thinking about a little bit to uh, the first time I met you, you taught me how to play Last Will. Oh right, okay. Uh, it was the same year that the Prodigal Club came out, yes. which I have not which I haven't played yet, although I do own it. So that's been sitting on my shelf of opportunity for way too long. Uh, but I, I like that game, even though it's not the deepest of games. No. The, the theme is so amusing and it's so much fun. Yeah. It's just fun. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a fun little game. Yeah. In fact, I use that game. Uh, I used Last Will as a, uh, a gateway game, actually, to oh, get right. people into okay. Placement action selection type it, of, it, it, type of It's funny, Last Will, because, you know, and this is, this is drifting slightly off topic, but... I think Last Will is an abstract game. It is. It is. It is. But it's got the theme. The, the, the theme is there. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's a card that if it has this icon that loses two pounds, and if you've got if you've got a yellow blob, you lose an extra two pounds. That's what it actually does. Now, what it is in the game is that you're going to a restaurant with your horse. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. I love that yeah. so hard. It's like a game that, even though I don't play it that often, I maybe play it once a year or once every 18 months, but that's a game that I, I will not sell. Um, I would also like to say that uh, at one point, I there was a Tom Vassell, um, he, does a, he does a Jack Vassell Memorial yeah. uh, run, and I was the high bidder for one of your... Pulsar 2849. Oh my goodness gracious, you remember. I am, I am honored. Yeah. Uh, and that's a great game, and I actually do play that game quite a your bit. Your name's so, in the video. Uh, no, I know yeah. it's it's it. When people see it, they I, I still occasionally get emails about it. Like, really, you're in that? I'm like, yeah, yeah it's not yeah. baseball highlights 2045. I'm like, I do like other games besides baseball. Yeah, highlights. as lo as long as they've got four numbers at the end of it, then. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Well, uh, Paul, uh, I want to thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Um, I've learned a lot and I've come to appreciate what you do more, uh, even though I, I'm, I'm a huge fanboy of your editing, your game rule editing skills. Uh, I want to thank you uh, for coming on to our, our humble little podcast. Uh, you know, we're up to 50 listeners now. We're hoping to breach 100 sometime in the next you know six months. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that you came on. Um, oh, it's, it's an absolute delight. I'm just going to share a quick story, just as you were saying there about um, teaching people and the joy of teaching people. Good for years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. Uh, I'm a big fan of diplomacy. And myself and a buddy of mine were teaching people diplomacy at a convention in the university, local university. And we had seven guys and girls in one game we'd kind of gathered them together and we were explaining the rules to them and uh, we were saying you do this and it's all about kind of agreeing to deals and so on and then i dropped it in there that the deals are non-binding and two people's in that group their eyes lit up the right. rest didn't and i reckon those two guys now you know are bank managers politicians <laughs> you know and so on yeah there's some maybe president, maybe president. I say, actually, yeah, that was it. One of them was a little bit short on top. The um, but, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely get where you're coming from, Paul. I'm delighted you came on this evening. Normally, we kind of you know, we could chat all night. Um, we could. I've got I've got dozens yeah. more stories. Yeah, but it's it's, and I hope you will come back to us at some stage because you've been a very interesting guest, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Um, yeah, yeah thank you very much, Philip. And uh, for, for, for our listeners, if they want to get a hold of me, I can be reached on Twitter at the at sign Board Game Rabbi. I can be reached on Instagram at the at sign EX Wall Street. And they can reach me or they can also find me on Paul's Slack channel because I'm there. I'm not as active as I can be because of the five hour time difference, but eh, it, I'm usually I'm usually there. Uh, and you can also find me on the board game group uh, on Facebook where I am a admin. Vic, where can they find you? They can find me at NaveCon. Um, I run a board game convention in Ireland uh, called NaveCon, and it's just purely board games, the occasional card game and so on. Um, and I think I might even give a discount to Paul if he's ever over. <laughs> but no. My discount coming. You get 5%. The, um, <laughs> it's, it'll probably be a little while before we run it again. We were just about to kick off, and then the virus kicked off. So right. yeah, that was that was a kick in the pants. Whereabouts we, are you in Ireland? It's Second in Limerick, um, which is down south. And yeah, it runs twice a year just to run once. And people kind of had a big demand for it. So people come from all over to play. And it's it's like a Thursday night games convention, but with a couple of hundred people. Um, so you're very welcome to come anytime, Paul. The um, Listen, and I'm and I'm hoping to fly fly across the pond one day to to do it. Paul, if, if our listeners wanted to get a hold of you, where can they reach you? Yeah, I mean, I'm in a few places. Um, so the the YouTube channel, which is where all of my videos is, it's YouTube.com/slash/GamingRulesVideos. Uh, that's also the Facebook page, uh, Gaming Rules Videos. But then when I went on Twitter, I realized that Gaming Rules Videos was too long for Twitter, so I had to shorten it to Gaming Rules Vids. Um, <laughs> The downside of that is lots of people on Facebook tag me in as Gaming Rules Vids, and of course I don't see that because there is no such thing. So yeah, Gaming Rules Vids on Twitter, uh, Gaming Rules Videos on YouTube and Facebook. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very active on uh, various various Facebook groups and on Board Game Geek as well. Great. Well, with that, I want to thank everybody, and as Vic and I like to say, always be gaming. Always be gaming. Always be gaming. Take care, everyone. Take care. Take care.